Crossway Church Sermon Audio. I use um, I use Microsoft Family Safety, which I've been using for about a decade at this point. It's decent. I wouldn't say it's great. It's decent. I'm familiar with it, and I don't want to change. And the price is right because it's free. So I use that. But as you can imagine, Microsoft Family Safety doesn't work on any Apple products. Exactly. Not their computers. Not their phones. And that's why when the time comes, I get Windows computers and Android phones for my daughters. And my stance on this has caused all manner of consternation in my home. My one daughter at college was just telling me, Dad, you have no idea how embarrassing it is to have an Android phone. Everyone makes fun of me whenever I take my... Just listen to the, the uh, descriptors there. Everyone makes fun of me whenever I take out my phone. To which I said, you're welcome for the free phone. And also, when you're a bit older and you can afford it, you can buy any phone you like. But it's worth noting how things have changed. Things have changed dramatically. Back in the mid-late to late 90s, when Steve Jobs was looking to bring Apple Computer back from the dead... He employed an advertising campaign literally based on the slogan, think different. Think different. Now if you think different, the Apple bullies on campus will mock you for thinking differently. Thinking differently in our choice of operating systems for our computing devices is not really that consequential. But being different from the world is in fact fundamental to being Christian. Fundamental. Let me say that again. If we are Christian, we must be different from the world in such a way that it, it can be called out. It's marked. And it's not that our goal is to be different. We don't set out and say, okay, I'm a Christian uh, my, my whole goal in life is to be different. Our goal is to follow and glorify our Lord Jesus. But doing that makes us stick out worse than having an Android phone on campus. So our goal is not, let me try and be different, but if our lives are no different than an unbeliever and our values are no different than the culture around us, if we find ourselves agreeing almost entirely with the culture around us, then we can use it as an indicator to make corrections. Being Christian makes us different. So I have a proposal from our text this morning, and the wording is, I admit, a bit convoluted, when you first look it over. But I think it's faithful, and as you consider it, I believe it will become more clear, and I think it will become helpful as well. So here it is. Continue in the right way to continue to grow rightly different. Continue in the right way to continue to grow rightly different. So if we stay on the right path, if we stay on the 
path of righteousness, in the way of the cross, on the road of discipleship, we will become more and more different from the world. But that's right and good. It's part of becoming a mature believer. We're going to become different from the world in the right ways. Rightly different. Continue in the right way to continue to grow rightly different. We're going to take our text in two parts. First, we are rightly different from the world. And as we step toward our text this morning, keep in mind the context of the text. Paul is near the end of his life. He's in a dungeon of a prison. Execution is nearing for the apostle. He's writing to his younger co-laborer, Timothy. Timothy's probably the lead pastor, elder of the church in Ephesus. And he's tasked with not only shepherding that church, but also raising up more elders for that church and beyond. And so what we read here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 are among Paul's last words. And they are his best efforts to keep the churches he's been working with to remain focused and faithful and to grow in Christ. He's, He's doing his best that he can through writing to try to stir up the church and keep it on the right track. So part of what he's done is to say to Timothy, listen, we talked about this last week. He says to Timothy, listen, these are the last days and this is what the world is like in the last days. In order to understand our text today, we should read a few verses before to remember what Paul is saying to Timothy. So let me read for you 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to go through verses 1 to 7. So if you have it there, you can look at verses 1 through 7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is This is what Paul writes here. This is God's evaluation of the world in which we live. This is total depravity applied. These are the last days that we are in, and this is how they are characterized. This is what people are like. And it's in contrast to this that Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, what comes next. That brings us to our text for today, at least the first few verses of it. So look at chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. You, however, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And you can see here, and you can hear here, the stark contrast between the world in general and then their false teachers that are in the world and Timothy. It's quite the divergence between the groups. Now notice that Paul says to Timothy, in contrast to the world, in contrast to the world, he says, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, and so on. He says, you have followed. Timothy has followed Paul. He's followed his example. Following gives the picture of walking behind. Metaphorically, Timothy's walking behind Paul, following him where he goes. In this picture, it's not so much of Timothy following a path or a GPS map so much, but he's following a person. Think of following someone in your car, someone in a car in front of you. You're following them to get to a location. They're leading you with their car, and when they turn, you turn. And when they stop, you stop. And when they speed up, you speed up to keep up with them so you don't get lost. You're following them. And it's hard to overemphasize the importance of example, of following someone. Example is so powerful. It influences our behavior at the deep levels, the deepest levels of values. When our youngest daughter was a toddler, one day she toddled up to the television and she put her finger on the screen and she tried to swipe it. <laughs> Why did she do that? I never taught her to do that. I didn't instruct her. She saw me doing that on a phone or a tablet, maybe even an Apple phone. And then she followed my example without even understanding it. She believed that this is how you relate to screens. When you see a screen, this is how you relate to it in the material world. That's how much is communicated in example. That's how powerful example is and how early it takes root. Example is such a powerful influence that it's a key component in teaching strategies. Here's a training method that you probably heard of in one form or another. In this form, it has five steps. Listen to this. You probably heard something like it. Number one, I do, you watch, we talk. Number two, I do, you help, we talk. Number three, you do, I help, we talk. Number four, you do, I watch, we talk. Number five, you do, someone else watches, and we don't have to keep talking anymore. I added that last part. But you get the idea. It's so based on example. It's a simple method, but it's powerful. And it's acknowledged across the board as something that works. How does it work? Because of the power of example. Example is especially necessary and effective for Christian growth. How do we know that? Well, just look to Jesus. His disciples basically lived with him for three years. Think about that. When our Lord came into the world and entrusted his saving message to men, of course, he taught them, but he used in large part his example. 
to move them to maturity and to prepare them for what they were called for. They walked with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They slept near him. Just last night, David Oliver was recollecting a time when, when uh, he and his father and myself and Donovan Drew, we went to a conference and we were all in a hotel room together. And he said he couldn't believe, he was a young man, he couldn't believe how, how his father was snoring and Donovan was snoring. And I guess I, I was snoring a little bit as well. Actually, I had sleep apnea. I was almost dying. David didn't care. He was just inconvenienced. Now think about that. Jesus is sleeping there. How many of his disciples were snoring and had sleep apnea? This is what he did. He lived with them to give them his example, to prepare them and to help mature them. And in our passage, Paul is holding the mirror up to Timothy to encourage him. He's telling Timothy that Timothy is rightly differentiated from the world. He's different from the world, rightly so, and that is largely due to faithfully following example, and in particular, Paul's example. He's saying, you've learned, and because of that, you're different from the world. You're mature, and you're maturing. He's saying, Timothy, by being with me and by orienting yourself to me as a servant of the Lord, now you are teaching the same things I'm teaching, and you're conducting yourself as I do, and you share the same purpose and goal in life, and you have faith in the Lord as I have faith in the Lord. It's been passed along to you, and you are patient in many situations with people just as I am, and you love our Lord, and you love his people as I have, and you have been steadfast to this very moment as I have shown you. Brothers and sisters, can we see why example is so critically important? Now, Paul's training a pastor here. He's giving last instructions to a pastor. He's making him aware of the power of example and how much it's, it's meant in, in the way that, that Timothy has become mature in Christ. And certainly pastors, that's a big part of what we do is we exemplify. We're meant to exemplify. We know we're not doing it perfectly, but as part of what we're, we're supposed to be doing. But it's not just for pastors, is it? And think of how glorious and powerful it is if we are all growing by example into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's say all of the, let's say all of the older men in this church made it their goal to be an example for all of the young men in the church and all of the older women in the church made it their goal to be an example for all of the younger women in the church. Think of how profound the teaching moments, the, the way that that example would be spread through the body and how maturity would happen powerfully in our midst. Our younger men and women, when they would experience different circumstances, they would say, oh, I know how to do this because so-and-so was an example of this in my life. And make no mistake, many of us have been examples already, and many of us will continue to be examples, and many of us will grow in that way. But what if we make it our goal to exemplify these things? This way, when our younger men and women they see us taking a stand in this world and being very different from the world, rightly so. They say, I know how to do this. I know how to be like Jesus. I know how to be mature in this moment. 
because I saw it in my brother and my sister. If those who come behind us are to grow in the Lord, their maturation will come in contrast to the world's values and behavior. They're going to need our example. You see, that's why it matters. When we make a choice in in our lives and we're, we're thinking, the only person I'm harming here is myself, so it's okay if I waste this time or I'm not diligent or I or I sin in this way. No, no. Our example is needed and has a powerful impact on the church. We should keep in mind that Paul's example included being persecuted and suffering for our Lord. Paul says that Timothy has followed his persecutions and sufferings that happened to him at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. When Paul references those three cities, he's talking about his first missionary journey. He's talking about what actually happened to him in those places. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 14. In Pisidian Antioch, the crowd drove Paul out of the city when he tried to preach Christ. And it was here that he seemed to, to, to raise up certain powerful enemies against himself. And they followed him to the next cities. So he goes to Iconium and there they attempt to stone him because of his testimony about Jesus. But they fail. He gets away. Finally, Paul's enemies follow him from Antioch and Iconium and they get to him in Lystra where he goes next and he's preaching Christ and people are coming to Jesus and they succeed in stoning him in Lystra. They stone him in Lystra. Imagine being pelted with large rocks by a crowd that you can't escape. And he's knocked unconscious, obviously, and they drag him out of the city. They leave him outside the city for dead. When all the commotion is done, the Christians from the area, which was probably a fairly small group, probably less than our group here this morning, they gather around him. You can imagine their sorrow and concern. To their amazement, he gets up. Paul gets up, and he goes back into the city. It was after that when Timothy meets Paul. So he meets him after these events. And he hears the stories of these events. Timothy knows what it costs Paul to proclaim Christ. He knows Paul's example. Paul's example proved that Paul believed what he taught and it proved that what Paul taught was true. His example in persecution and suffering became a powerful force to establish others in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what our example in persecution and suffering can do for others as well. And Paul wanted to provide for Timothy some interpretive clarity. And so here's verse 12. We'll put up on the screen. And Paul writes this. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's an absolute statement. That's a fact that he's stating. He's, by the Holy Spirit, he's being carried along by the Spirit to teach Timothy and then to teach us the outcome in the last days of a godly life. You see, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy had properly understood what had happened to him. And he's saying, listen, don't, 
Don't, don't think that my persecution came about because I did something wrong. My persecution came about because I was, I was living a godly life. It's because I was trusting Jesus and following him. That's why this happened to me. And if it happened to someone today, I could easily see some Christians saying something like, well, he should have known better than to try to testify about Jesus in those places and to those people. But Paul doesn't give us that out. He doesn't, he doesn't give us that excuse. He doesn't allow us to live so comfortably. You see, Paul is saying, I'm simply living a godly life. And for who he was, an apostle, and what he was called to, this is him living a godly life, just being faithful. And persecution happens to people who do that. We too should anticipate the potential of persecution. And when it happens to some Christians, we should properly evaluate it. We should bring our biblical truth and clarity to the situation so that we understand what was, why, why did this happen? Because it may well have happened because they lived a godly life. A quick COVID example, and then we'll move on. You may remember that the state of California and L.A. County sought to ban indoor worship. We didn't face that uh, as directly here. I'm grateful. But there they did. John MacArthur is a well-known pastor, and his church said, no, we are Christians, and we will continue to meet. That's what Christians do. Even if we're being persecuted, we're going to try to meet. In other words, they were simply living, hear me on this, they're just Christians meeting, they're simply living a godly life. The county fined them for every meeting that the church opened up for. So every week they were getting fined, and it was just getting bigger and bigger. They did more than that. They did much more than that. They sought to hold John MacArthur and other leaders in contempt of court. And they sought to penalize every leader of the church $10,000. This has teeth. This is vicious. This is persecution. And what is instructive to us, if we step back and had observed what was going on, is that American Christians were quick to voice their disapproval of MacArthur and the church. They were quick to voice disapproval of brothers and sisters who met together and were godly. They said, oh, their tone's not good, or oh, they should, they should just obey the government even though the government was way out of line, stepping out of their sphere of authority to, to try to be an affront to God and say, actually, you're not God, we're God. You have to worship us, your church is closed. No, 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 no. And so they peaceably, safely gathered as a church. Many got COVID, by the grace of God, just like the statistics everywhere, very few were, had had. Uh, terrible, terrible problems. Some did, but very few. Just like in the general population, no matter what anybody did. And they met together and they worshiped the Lord. But it was the Christians. It was the Christians that were quick to voice their disapproval of John MacArthur. And many have even written John MacArthur off. It's as if they had forgotten that we're going to be persecuted for being godly. And they think that because they don't know the scriptures. And they misinterpreted the moment in these last days. 
And many Christians came down on the wrong side of that when they should have been supportive of their brothers and sisters. Many people condemned them publicly and in the media. And they have not retracted what they said or apologized for it. Brothers and sisters, may it not be. Yes, simply living a godly life will get you persecuted. Now remember in verse 11, Paul says the Lord rescued him from all of the sufferings and persecutions. Well, the Lord rescued Grace Church in L.A. County from their suffering because eventually the courts ruled in favor of the church's religious freedom and the county had to drop their fines and pay the church. In other words, the county and the state did what was wrong. They did what was illegal. And the church did what was right, even in the eyes of American law, which is a rather fascinating case. The outcome of persecution and suffering may not be so quick in other cases. But even when Paul is facing execution, he knows that the greatest rescue is what Jesus has already done on the cross for him. Have you been rescued yet? Have you been rescued? You know, without Jesus, we are in trouble. We've got to face God. And there's sin on our head. There's sin in our bank account. We are, we're, we've, we're sinners. We're in trouble. We need salvation. And that's why Jesus goes to the cross, to, to give us the greatest rescue that could ever happen. And Paul's received that. He knows that he has salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he's going to face any suffering the Lord gives him, even execution, because he knows that ultimately his, his, his rescues already happened. And in this example, and even facing execution for Jesus. Paul's an example to us, isn't he? He's an example. Continue in the right way to continue to grow rightly different from the world. Now, we saw that we are rightly different from the world. That's what Paul's been rightly different and, and Timothy's been rightly different. Now we need to also continue to walk in that path. We're rightly different. Let's continue to walk in that path. We see the importance of example to help us mature and to continually grow, to be differentiated from the world. But clearly, example must be informed by teaching. And here we will see how it is to be informed. What's that source of information? That brings us to verses 14 to 17. Let me read for you. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he has learned from his example. But then he essentially says, and you have firmly 
believed. I want you to continue in this, but you firmly believe. That's clear, Paul's saying, and that's important for us because it's a bit in vogue right now, especially on social media Christianity, especially in American Christianity. It's a bit in vogue right now to equate doubt, to equate doubt with honesty and authenticity and sincerity and humility. Oh, look how humble he is. He has doubts. And even maturity. Doubt is seen as a virtue. It's even seen as maturity. Some Christians seem to see the confession of doubt in a believer as the highest quality. Please know, dear friends, that is not biblical. That is not godly instruction. That is the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. Of course, Christians can face doubts, but that's not a sign of maturity. Doubting God is not a sign of maturity. Doubting God is a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of needing to grow up. James says that the person that doubts God is unstable. And remember that man in Mark who replied to Jesus with the cry that we can all resonate with. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Crying out to God, help me. To Jesus, help me to get over my unbelief so that I believe in you as God and as my Savior who will save me. Doubting God at any point is not a virtue. It is at best immaturity. At best, it's immaturity. And the longer we are in Christ and the more, we, the more mature we become in him, the more firm our convictions should be and the more clear that should be to everyone around us. That's maturity. Is growing more firm in our faith as Paul commends Timothy. It is certainly the case that for many of us, as we have seen the faithfulness of God throughout our lives, we've grown stronger in our faith, right? I know you feel similarly to me, or you think similarly to me in this. Those of you that have walked with the Lord for some time, and you look back on your life, you say, the Lord has always met me. He met me there, and he met me there, and he met me there, and today I stand in him because he's always carried me. And you become slowly through time, you grow and you become convinced. That means, that means he's going to meet me tomorrow. He's going to be right there the next day. That means, you know what that means? That means when I face trouble, that's an opportunity to trust him, to bring him glory. He's met me each step of the way. You know what that means? That, that means when I face death, he's going to be right there. And when I pass through those waters, I will see his face. You see, Timothy's firmly convinced to the point that 
he knows. He, he, he cannot deny Christ. You see, that's to where we're growing, to the point where we cannot deny Christ. That, that is so plain and so obvious as the nose on our face. There's, so, there's nothing more real than God and his Christ. There's nothing greater in our lives. There's, there's nothing more absolute to build a life around than the reality of him. He's more real than me. He's more real than you. That's where he's taking us. Paul connects Timothy's firm belief to two factors. He's grown this way. He connects it to two factors. The one is what we already talked about, example. The example of others. and The examples that he's grown through, through life and experiences. Paul writes, knowing from whom you learned it. So he's probably talking about uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother who are believers and are referenced in another part of the Scriptures. But he's clearly also talking about Paul himself because Paul just said, you followed my example in these ways. So Paul's making a quick reference back to that. He's saying, that's part of why you've become firm in your belief. But that's not all. Paul also ties Timothy's firm belief and his maturity into the Scriptures. And he says, he says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings since you were a child. Since you were a child. Aren't those beautiful words? That should give hope to every parent. You see, we need to put the Scriptures in front of our children as early as we can. We need to put the scriptures near them and around them. It's one of the glorious things about taking your family to church is because they're going to hear the word of God taught and preached and explained and exemplified. There's no more important writing. There's no more important learning that we can make our children acquainted with. One of the most beautiful childhood memories I have is of my father leading us in family devotions and when it was my turn to read. So we would go around and we'd read the text and from my earliest uh, times of being able to read, my father had me read to the family out loud the Bible. That is a glorious exercise and it's simple enough that all of us can do that with our children and make them acquainted with the word of God. From a child, you were acquainted. Let me encourage every parent of a young child to make this a top priority. Paul calls the scriptures something like sacred writings. It's, in, it's translated here, sacred writings. And now these aren't just any writings of any person. No, these are writings, or these writings are set apart. They're different than other writings are in a different category. If we had a stack of books here and the Bible's on top to do this right, I would have to take the Bible out of that stack of books and say, no, no, this is in a category by itself. It's not in the same category. What's the difference? The difference is the authors. Those books would be a writing of human authors, but the Bible is not only a writing of a human or human authors. When humans author something fundamentally, fundamentally, when they write something, they're writing from one peer to another. Obviously, there might be more education or whatnot, but meaning it's one human communicating to other humans. 
And so from that, stand, from that standpoint, we're all peers. But when God writes to us, He speaks and so reveals Himself. And so the sacred writings have God as the author, the Creator making Himself known. Have you ever seen someone, think about this, have you ever seen someone that when you first saw them, they actually looked intimidating to you? Or maybe you didn't think that it would be pleasant talking to them or getting to know them and you, you immediately or instinctively had a, ah, I'm not so sure. But then when you talked to them, you went away thinking, he's a perfectly lovely guy. I want to spend more time with him. I like him or her. Well, what happened there? What, what went on? What was the difference? Well, the difference was you saw and you, you made an interpretive judgment, but then when they opened their mouth, what did they do? They, they made themselves known to you in some way. And in doing that, when they spoke, you got a sense of their character, of who they are. Now, of course, they could be deceptive, but generally speaking, you got a sense of who they are a little bit. And, and, and you saw they weren't a threat per se, but someone you could interact with and maybe even befriend. They revealed themselves to some extent through their words. And when God writes to us, He speaks and He reveals Himself, except with God we find out that he is both more severe and also more gracious than we could have ever imagined and still can't quite fully grasp, even though he's revealed himself as such. And this is what we get when God authors the Scriptures through human means. We get words from God. That's what makes the Bible special as it comes from Him. He's speaking. And verse 16 here in chapter 3 is the strongest statement in the Bible about the nature of Scripture. It says that God breathed out the Scripture. The King James Version said all Scripture is inspired by God. Inspiration, it means to breathe in. Think of, it, think of inhale instead of exhale. But when you speak, generally, you exhale, right? So inspiration may not be the best translation for our day, especially because it's a word that's used so broadly today. Think of God simply speaking, like you or I would speak, and the breath is coming out of us as we speak. But it's even more than that. So he's, he's talking, he's revealing himself, just like you and I do. But also remember how God gave life to Adam. Remember this? To Adam, he gave the breath of life. And what he did is he took material of the earth, the clay, and he formed it into a body. But that body did not live yet. Humans were not yet alive until God did what? He breathed into Adam. So he breathed out of himself and breathed into Adam the breath of life. And so when God breathes out his words... He's breathing into us life. When God speaks, the breath of life goes with the words. That's another good way to think of it. The words on these pages, they're life-giving words that come from God. Now, who doesn't want to read this? Sure enough, verse 15 tells us that the Scriptures are, to make, are able to make us wise for salvation. It's not that we simply read the words of the Bible and are saved. 
but rather the words in the Bible are the training that we need to understand what we, how, how, well, what we need salvation from and who gives that salvation and how that salvation comes to us and why that salvation comes to us and what life is for after we receive that salvation and what we're to do once we receive that salvation and who that salvation is found in. That's why it says that the Scriptures can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus because it points to Him. It's not just reading the words per se. It's the person that the words point to that does the saving that we need. So these words, in a very real way, they're from God that he breathes them out and they, it breathes life into us, first with salvation in Christ Jesus and then everything else that's yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That seems like a book that's worth picking up, right? We will often refer to this. We want to keep reminding you, are you picking up the Bible daily? Are you in God's word daily? Don't ever stop reading the Bible. Read some every day. Read as much as makes sense, but read some every day. Make it your life because it's life-giving. When we get to that list of ways that the Scriptures are profitable in this portion of text, we can detect a contextual reality here too. In verse 10, the first way that Timothy followed Paul was in Paul's teaching, right? So all of the example of Paul is flowing out of objective truth that comes from God himself, the teaching. And sure enough, the first way that Scripture is profitable to us is that it can be taught. It's in the teaching. We need the interpretive grid that God gives us in the Scriptures to understand life. And then we see reproof and correction. So the Scriptures are profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction. And knowing the the context that we're in here, reproof probably focuses on confronting the false teachers that Paul was warning about. They need to be reproved. They need to be told, no, you're wrong, and stop that. But then correction is probably focusing on the believers who were sucked into the false teaching, where, where Paul's saying, Timothy, you need to say to those folks, listen, that's not quite right. Let me show you what's right. Here's the right way, and corrects what's out of line. And so Scripture is the answer for those sticky situations in the local church that crop up rather frequently. Reproof and correction from the Scriptures are necessary and have their place and are grace to us. The Scriptures are also profitable for training in righteousness. Uh, We have a dog at home. She's a little over a year old, and we're trying to train her. And she's so much better behaved now that she's a little over a year than she was even a few months ago. And some of the training we thought was, we thought it was fruitless and, and, and futile. But as she's gotten older, we see she's gotten some of this and she's really good. And so she's calming down, becoming more mature. Nevertheless, sometimes when people come over, we put her in the garage just so that she won't jump on anyone. Unless it's Steve or Doug. And then I say to her, go say hi to Mr. Heitland and Mr. Plank. And she does. She goes and jumps all over, and they love it. They just love it. Well, the moral of the story is we're supposed to grow so that we're not like the one-year-old puppy in the church. And that takes training. 
This is one reason we continually read and study and preach the Scripture. It's from God, and it trains us in righteousness, in a right life, and what it looks like to be like Jesus or to do the right thing that in the eyes of God in the world. That's what righteousness is. What does God say is right? Well, when we do that, we're righteous. And more seriously, that righteousness, it makes us complete. And what is complete? Well, it doesn't mean perfect. Not for us, not yet. Ultimately, it will make us perfect. But it makes us rather ready. The completeness is ready to do every good work. Every good work. Let me ask. Let me ask you this. Let me ask us this. Are we ready for a good work? Is each of us ready for a single good work? Even if we're, just, if we're all ready for a single good work, that would be profound in this world. But if we're complete, we're going to be ready for every good work. Always ready for when God puts an opportunity in front of us to do good works that flows from our faith in Christ and, and glorifies him in this world. It reminds me of the Christmas gifts for the, for, uh, uh, for, um, for the elementary school across the street that we're, we're going to be doing. Most of us couldn't buy a hundred gifts for the children there, but together for this church, that's child's play. Last year, I think we ended up doing 70 gifts, and, and we had so much capacity for more, we thought, let's take a step, and we'll, we'll go for a hundred gifts this year. And these are needy families. They're people that, that could use some help at Christmas time. And so together, by doing this, we're making a big impact. This one good work that we're doing. To give a gift to the families at E.R. Martin Elementary School. We're doing a good work together that will bless and proclaim Jesus to them in some way. And as we're trained in the Scriptures, the Lord equips us to be more and more useful to everyone around us. And we're going to do more and more good works collectively. What an impact we can have. What an impact we will have as just one local church in this county. We can have a huge impact on our neighbors and communities. One of the ways God wants to do that is through good works, good works toward one another and good works toward the people around us, to our neighbors, to our communities. May the Lord grow us and bless our efforts as we grow mature to become complete so that we can do every good work that God puts in front of us. I want to ask the ushers to come and begin passing out the elements for communion. This is how Timothy will continue to grow and how he will continue to grow to be different and differentiated from this world in a right way, different from, different from the world in a right way through immersion in the Scriptures and through the example of the mature. We too will grow and what a light we will shine. Brothers and sisters, continue in the right way, on the right road. Continue in example, in learning from example, and continue from the Scriptures, in learning from the Scriptures, to continue to grow, to be rightly differentiated from the world in this time. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.